American Majority. Days of Revolution is a podcast series brought to you by AmericanMajority.org. This is Ned Ryan, and welcome to episode 20, The Townsend Acts. The 1760s were a definitive decade in the history of the American colonies. At the start, the French and Indian War rocked the North American continent, and by its end, conflict between the American colonists and the imperial government had intensified to the point of violence. The story of the 1760s is one of a slow erosion of the familial relationship between British subjects on both sides of the Atlantic, which after the initial slow erosion rapidly accelerated into the violence that we would see in the late 1760s and early 1770s. The fragile peace between the colonies and the crown quickly decayed as the British government repeatedly tested the limits of its power, eventually reaching the breaking point. Tensions between the colonists and Parliament escalated with each successive tax or regulatory act passed in London. As Parliament repeatedly tried to tap the colonists' wealth to pay off its war debt, the colonists took notice, and with each new act, their resistance grew stronger. The 1760s closed with the most explosive conflict yet, the Townsend Acts. These infamous acts were a series of taxes and laws passed by Parliament throughout 1767 and 1768 and they were by far the largest power grab that Parliament had yet attempted. The acts were named after Charles Townsend, the Chancellor of the Exchequer, in a fit office roughly equivalent to our Secretary of the Treasury. Now, Townsend crafted the fiscal policy of the British Crown, so he was primarily responsible for finding a way to pay off the debt from the French and Indian War. He rose to the challenge by proposing several aggressive acts, which would come to bear his name. Now, as we study the Townsend Acts, I want to examine them as the colonists saw them. If we were to properly view the acts from the colonial perspective, we need to understand a crucial distinction. Historians have pointed out that the revenue-raising power of the Townsend Acts was only of secondary importance to the colonists. Instead, what the colonists hated most about them was the precedent they set for Parliament's power to tax. In his Constitutional History of the American Revolution, Historian John Philip Reed notes that the debate over Parliament's power to tax the colonies had begun with the passage of the Stamp Act the year before. Until 1766, the colonists had been willing to comply with Parliament's regulatory measures for the most part because they assumed that Parliament exercised legitimate authority. Naysayers like Samuel Adams, though they were vocal, were rare in the early 1760s. However, the Stamp Act prompted many colonists to actually begin questioning Parliament's authority to levy taxes on millions of people who were not even represented in the legislature. Now, instead of just complaining that they were forced to pay higher taxes, colonists began arguing that those taxes were not legitimate to begin with. The question of constitutionality was a crucially important one that was debated all the way up until the Revolutionary War. The first of the infamous Townsend Acts was the Revenue Act of 1767. As its name would suggest, this act ex existed exclusively to raise money for the crown. Because the Stamp Act had failed to raise money the previous year, Townsend had come up with a different form of taxation to bring in the needed revenue. The Stamp Act had been designed to be an internal tax, basically a fee applied at the moment a colonist bought any paper product. Townsend correctly saw that the colonists considered internal taxes to be unconstitutional, but he mistakenly assumed that the external taxes, or taxes on imported goods, were permissible. According to historian John Reed, this distinction was of vital importance in Townsend's economic policy making. 
So it was the beginning of the new external tax strategy, the Revenue Act of 1767 added duties to imports of paper, paint, lead, glass, and tea. Conveniently, all of these items the colonists could only legally purchase from British merchants. Now, these new taxes were certainly important, but as I mentioned earlier, the financial implications of the Revenue Act were secondary to its political precedents. A perfect example of an astonishing precedent is the change in the pay structure of certain colonial officials in 1767. Before the Revenue Act, royal governors and judges had been paid by tax revenue raised in the colonies. This made them somewhat accountable to the colonists, even if they had been appointed by the king. The colonists were unable to democratically choose a governor or a judge, but they still had the power to cut off an official's pay if he abused his office. However, the Revenue Act of 1767 changed all of this. It allocated funds to make several royal governors and judges direct employees of the crown, paying them from London rather than from their respective colonies. This change in financial structure removed all accountability from royal governors and judges. After 1767, there was nothing left to compel them to listen to the concerns of the people they governed. The second Townsend Act was known as the Indemnity Act. This resolution reduced the tax on imported British tea to make it more competitive with Dutch tea. While this seems like a smart economic move, it is crucial to remember that the British had instituted a monopoly on the tea trade with the colonies. It was completely illegal for the colonists to buy Dutch tea. Thus, because the price of illegal tea influenced Parliament's tax policy, we can conclude that smuggling was wildly popular in the 1760s, and it was. And Parliament was at least somewhat resigned to the fact of colonial smuggling. However, the second part of the Indemnity Act made a somewhat stronger effort to root out illegal trade by reinforcing the authority of the writs of assistance. As I mentioned in an earlier podcast, writs of assistance were general search warrants issued to British customs agents allowing them to search any home, business, or ship they suspected of smuggling. Anyone with a writ of assistance would not be held responsible for any damage they might cause to the process of searching, so customs officials had no reason to respect colonists' privacy or personal belongings. Next, Parliament passed the Vice Admiralty Court Act of 1768, expanding the authority and jurisdiction of the infamous Admiralty Courts. As I mentioned in an earlier podcast on the Sugar Act, the Admiralty Courts were tribunals established specifically for trying colonists accused of smuggling. Crucially, the Admiralty Courts did not allow the defendants to be tried by a jury of their peers. From the British standpoint, this made sense because a jury made up of American colonists would never convict one of their own for violating the hated British monopoly. The Vice Admiralty Court Act of 1768 set up three new admiralty courts in Boston, Philadelphia, and Charleston to more efficiently try and convict colonial smugglers. With this act, Townsend and Parliament made a judicial power grab in addition to the previous economic ones. While we consider trial by a jury of one's peers a fundamental right today, it was out of the question for the colonists in the 1760s. Perhaps no one understood this fact better than John Hancock, the great patriot and future signer of the Declaration of Independence, who actually stood trial in an admiralty court in 1768. In August of that year, British troops seized the Liberty, one of Hancock's merchant ships, 
on suspicion of smuggling wine into the port of Boston. Though he was never convicted, Hancock had an infamous reputation as a successful smuggler. Hancock was, of course, one of the wealthiest men in the American colonies, and some believe that his personal fortune came at least partially, actually mostly, from importing illegal goods. But again, he was never actually convicted. In his admiralty trial of 1768, Hancock was defended by none other than John Adams, and the charges against him were eventually dropped. Unfortunately, Hancock's success story was a rare one in a legal system that was clearly stacked in favor of the British authorities. As if the expansion of the admiralty courts was not contentious enough, Parliament pushed its constitutional limits even further with the next resolution, the New York Restraining Act of 1768. This act was a direct response to the New York colony's refusal to comply with the Quartering Act of 1765. After the Quartering Act was passed, New York refused to fund it and provided no money for the housing of British troops. After a three-year standoff, Parliament passed the Restraining Act, which threatened to suspend the New York colonial legislature until it funded the quartering of soldiers. Recognizing that it had no other choice, the New York legislature complied before the act took effect, but in the process, it passed a resolution declaring that Parliament did not have the constitutional authority to suspend a colonial legislature. While Parliament had forced New York's hand in the standoff, the colonists realized that a constitutional debate was just beginning. This has been a relatively brief summary of the various Townsend Acts and their effects. While there are many other finer details associated with each one, the most important theme of the Townsend Acts is that they did not concern the colonists by expanding taxation, or not at least primarily. Instead, they alarmed the colonists by rapidly concentrating power to the royal government at the expense of colonial liberty. With the Townsend Acts, Parliament was testing the limits of its influence and power, and the colonists began to realize that they jeopardized their freedom each time they allowed a new act to pass without resistance. As a result, the colonists' reactions to the Townsend Acts grew bolder and at times more violent. Because the acts were passed in such rapid succession, the colonists had little time in between to cool down. Their anger was stoked with each new tax or regulation, and Parliament seemed to re be relentlessly piling on the burdens and removing liberty. One brave colonist named John Dickinson vocalized his opposition by penning a series of open letters, which are now known as the Letters from a Farmer in Pennsylvania. I will cover Dickinson's letters in more detail in a future podcast, but it's key to note here that Dickinson focused on the constitutional precedent set by the Townsend Acts. Dickinson astutely realized that with the Acts, Parliament had seized power that it had never been expressly granted, and that this was a dangerous development. Another prominent reaction to the acts was more widespread. Several colonies drafted petitions to the king in which they officially asked for the repeal of the Townsend Acts and argued that Parliament had overstepped its constitutional bounds. As we would expect, the king did not receive these complaints warmly. Instead, he issued an order to the colonial governors instructing them to dissolve any colonial legislature that petitioned against the Townsend Acts. King George would not tolerate challenges to Parliament's power, especially when his kingdom was in such dire financial straits. The most explosive reaction to the Townsend Acts occurred in Boston in August of 1768. Following the seizure of John Hancock's ship and the smuggling charges brought against him, 
the people of Boston began to riot. Now, this violence was of particular concern to the British authorities because the American Customs Board, the British agency that investigated smuggling and prosecuted smugglers in admiralty courts, was headquartered in Boston. The Customs Board had made a grave mistake by prosecuting a public figure as popular as Hancock. By provoking a riot, they had endangered their own safety. Naturally, they requested British troops to be sent to Boston to keep order and to protect customs officers. On October 1, 1768, British troops arrived in Boston Harbor, disembarked, and occupied Boston for over a year. They left only after the Boston Massacre in 1770. Once again, the British authorities had made an unprecedented power grab, this time with a vulgar display of military might. For decades, British troops had been present in large numbers in North America, but never before had a standing army occupied an American city. The occupation of Boston was truly a paradigm shift in the relations between the colonists and the British authorities. No longer was the British army a protective force. Now its primary function was as a police unit. Soldiers lived among Bostonians, as a constant reminder of Britain's intolerance for dissent, and as an ever-present threat against any activity that threatened the authority of Parliament. Most importantly, the British could no longer claim to be family to the colonists, or even friends. They were now their overseers and supervisors, and they had chosen to live in a constant state of tension with the American colonists, a tension that would eventually reach its breaking point. Days of Revolution is a podcast series brought to you by AmericanMajority.org and written by Ned Ryan and Eric Josephson and recorded by Ned Ryan. If you enjoy this podcast on American history, be sure to check out the History of the Constitutional Convention by Ned Ryan at AmericanMajority.org or on iTunes. American Majority.